6: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to ouramericanstories.com. That's ouramericanstories.com. they There's some of our favorites. And by the way, make sure you share our show with folks you know as well. Let them know what we're doing, and it just makes a difference in terms of creating more fans not just of this show, but of this country. This is a show where America is the star, where the American people are the star. Up next, a story from Dennis Peterson, an author from South Carolina. Today, Dennis shares with us the story of his maternal grandmother, or nanny, as he and his family called her. Here's Dennis with the story.
4: Hands can reveal a lot about a person. For example, a city slicker, a paper pusher, or someone who sits in front of a computer all day will generally have soft, smooth hands. Someone who does regular, hard, manual labor outdoors in all kinds of weather, however, generally has hard, rough, calloused hands. The former will have clean, clear, neatly trimmed nails. The latter has thick, broken nails with some degree of dirt showing under them. Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes character certainly would notice such things. I too noticed them when I was growing up. I noticed especially my maternal grandmother's hands. Nanny, we grandkids called her. Perhaps the most prominent feature of Nanny's hands was that they showed unmistakable evidence of arthritis the knuckles were swollen and enlarged, hard and painful looking things. I especially recall the knuckle on her index finger where the finger joined the palm of her hand and the arthritis had drawn her index fingers inward toward the middle fingers in a painful curve. Her hands must often have hurt her because she continually rubbed them and she sometimes massaged into them various lotions and ointments such as Kaz Walker's Supraderm salve. I often wondered as I observed Nanny's arthritic hands if there was a connection between arthritis and hard work because Nanny's hands were always hard working hands. If they were not busy doing some kind of work, she was patting the arm of her chair with them or tapping the side of her leg or rubbing them. Her hands were seldom still. Nanny's hands had washed piles and piles of clothes long before she got an automatic wringer washer. I recall mothers recounting how Mondays were wash days. They built a fire back in the yard, heated water, and then carried it to the back porch where they poured it into a large tub. In went the dirty clothes and the lye soap. And then Nanny scrubbed the clothes on an old washboard the hot water and the lye burning her hands bright red. Then those strong hands rinsed the clothes and wrung the water from them before hanging them on the clothesline to dry in the bright sun and the clear country air. Nanny's hands were also busy in the kitchen, preparing and then frying or baking various foods. Peeling and mashing potatoes, shelling peas, breaking and stringing beans, peeling and slicing apples or peaches, or kneading and rolling out bread dough. She was always fixing, or had just fixed, something, so there was always something to eat at Nanny's house. One could always count on her having some kind of dessert in the kitchen. Coconut cake, stack cake, chocolate cake, apple pie. Her crusts were always what we kids described as stout meaning that one could hold a piece of pie in hand and eat it without its breaking apart. And my favorite, fried apple pies. One of them was a meal in itself, almost as good as a moon pie. Like a moon pie, one of Nanny's fried apple pies and an RC Cola would sure ruin a guy's supper. Nanny's hands were also expressive. She used them a lot when she talked, gesturing, pointing, waving, all motions designed subconsciously of course to further communicate whatever she was saying and they often covered her mouth not only when she was suddenly surprised by something or alarmed by what she had just heard but also when something had tickled her and she was trying to suppress a laugh but nanny's hands arthritic disfigured tired and worn though they were were most of all kind and gentle hands They could as easily wipe away a tear, calm a fear, comfort homesickness, and clean a scrape as they could carry in a heavy bucket of coal to feed her hungry, warm morning stove. They could as easily and gently caress and put the hand of a young grandson just going off to college, giving tactile proof of promised prayers as they would grab and break off a switch with which to administer grandmotherly discipline. To some people, Nanny Summers' hands might have seemed unsightly, perhaps even ugly. But to me, those hands were among the most beautiful and most lovely hands on earth.
6: And what a beautiful piece! A special thanks to Monty Montgomery for the production and to Dennis Peterson. An author from South Carolina for sharing the story. Her finger joined the palm of her hand, the contortions of arthritis. Well, When you look at it, you know it's painful. She continually rubbed them, he said, and they were hardworking hands. He wondered if arthritis came from hard work. To some, he said, nanny's hands were ugly, but to me, they were beautiful. And as I hear Dennis tell this story about his nanny's hands, I can't help but think of Bill Withers who tells, by the way, a remarkable story about his own grandma's hands in my favorite Bill Withers songs, and one of my favorite songs, Grandma's Hands. Go to YouTube and look for a Bill Withers concert version as he tells the story of his grandma's hands. Dennis Peterson's story about his nanny's hands here on Our American Story. We continue with our American stories, and up next we hear from Lori Spradley, the owner of the company the Goo Goo Cluster. You may have heard of this candy bar that was created back in 1912, but if not, here's Lori to share a little bit of the history of the Goo Goo and where they are today.
7: So, Standard Candy Company was started in downtown Nashville in 1901. And they were making hard candies, caramels, kind of single ingredient confections. And in 1912, the founder, Howell Campbell, and his right-hand man, Porter, were in the kitchen kind of playing around, and they invented the Goo Goo Cluster. And it was the first time anyone combined multiple ingredients into a single finished product So it was made of caramel, milk chocolate, peanuts, and a marshmallow nougat. And at first, it didn't have a name. And Howell was selling them on a streetcar in downtown Nashville. And story goes that a teacher was on the train and asked him what he was going to call this new confection and he's, he was like, I have no idea. And they conversation shifted to his newborn son. They started asking what he was up to. And they said, well, he just started talking. He's saying words like goo goo, Gaga. And they said, that's what you should call it. A goo goo. They're so good. People will ask for them from birth. And now we're stuck with this silly name. So my grandfather had been in the confection industry and made wedding cakes and owned a bakery and my dad out of business school discovered standard candy it was on the verge of bankruptcy and he called his dad and was like i think we can save this and so they bought it in 82 and so i'm the third generation to be involved in the business and it's it's been a wild ride when they purchased the company, it was only the original Goo Goo. And so they introduced the pecan variety, which at that time was called the Supreme, and it just replaced the peanuts with pecans. And that was in the 80s. And then in 90, early 90s, they introduced the peanut butter variety, which is the peanut butter center with peanuts and milk chocolate. And that's most of our favorite. I never thought I would work for the company. After college, I moved to New York City. I worked in sales, kind of did my thing for about six years and was just looking for something new. And at the same time, Gugu was going through some restructuring and changes. And I was kind of like, I think I can put my mark on this. I'm qualified and I think, you know, we can have a lot of fun with this. So I did intern when I was 15 years old and couldn't drive to a job i would go to work with my dad that summer and uh they had a jar out front of all three flavors and i probably had a goo goo every day i called it a lunch i was like i was like it's a peanut butter version it's got some protein it'll it counts (laughs) i honestly usually don't even have them at my house growing up everyone was like you have to have you you're the goo goo house you have to have them and we just don't i don't think anyone I guess maybe we've lost our sweet tooth. <laughs> but we did give them out at Halloween. We lived on a really popular trick-or-treating street growing up, and everyone knew we gave out full size goo goo clusters. So we were extra popular on Halloween. I think it was in first grade, so I don't know what age I was turning, maybe six or seven. And I took my for my birthday party, I took our my class to the factory. And we all wore hairnets and got to see the entire process. And my friends still talk about it to this day, and I'm so glad they do remember it because now with food regulations, it you can, I can barely get into the factory. So I'm I'm glad we all got to experience that, and I guess you know pretty good for a first grader. So in 2014, we opened up a retail store in downtown Nashville. And that was, it's really become like our test kitchen. We were able to hand make any sort of confections we desire. We get to kind of be our own, Howell Campbell and make our own take on a goo goo cluster. So we started out making, having with our pastry chef, making his own creations and putting all sorts of wonderful goodies together into a finished product. And we started I guess around the same time, partnering with local chefs and what we call our summer chef series. And so every summer we partner with six or so chefs in the community who get to create their own goo goo. We have a ton of fun with it because we all get to try all these new combinations. Outside of the Summer Chef series, we've also started partnering with other local businesses, one of them being barbecue and they were celebrating a big anniversary. So they asked us to create a Goo Goo for them, and it actually uses barbecue sauce. So it's a little sweet, it's a little spicy, um, a little funky and fun, and that's been a big hit. The Glen Campbell Museum created their own, and we even will create custom- candies for corporate events or parties. There definitely are some big cuckoo fans out there. We've got a huge fan out of Canada, and so he's, he's big on Twitter, and we kind of have fun with him. He's been to visit a couple of times and been into our store, but most of the stories are just real nostalgic. A lot of people remember eating them with their grandparents or parents. One of our Employees, Beth Sachan, she remembers sharing one with her mom at the checkout aisle in the grocery. They're just some really sweet memories and stories, and everyone's always wanting to share them with us, which we love. I think a fun thing about the brand is that it's really evolved over the years, but it stayed true to exactly what the original ingredients were. So, back when it was first created, they were sold in a glass candy jar with no wrapper and then that evolved to putting it in a little paper sleeve at the candy counter and then it was wrapped in foil similar to a peppermint patty and now and then it went to a sealed wrapper kind of like it is today but a different different imaging it's really Fun to be a part of a history. We still have a presence in downtown Nashville, right where the original one was first created. It's truly a stone's throw from the old factory. Yeah, I'd say our biggest challenge is trying to find, trying to transition our customer base from the older generation who remembers eating them as a kid to younger generations and making it a little more young, fun, playful, And so that's what we're trying to tackle. That's what we're, we want our our store to be like. We want everyone to feel like a kid. It's also one of the few places downtown where kids are gonna have fun. You know, we're not one of the honky tonks or a museum. We're, We're just a playful environment where you can feel like a kid again. And so it's been really fun to have that store to tell our real history and also get immediate customer feedback. And if you can't visit us in our downtown store in Nashville, we actually, you can design your own candy bar on our website. So goo you can create your own confection. You choose your chocolate, you choose your, any of your mix-ins. And we've got some weird things like potato chips and fruity pebbles and Kids definitely go a little a little crazy with their confections. They are throwing in all sorts of stuff that I personally don't think goes well together, but I'm sure with a ton of sugar, they're they're happy. We'll make it in our kitchen and ship it to you. We rolled that out during the pandemic and it's been really fun to see people who are not able to visit Nashville still be able to participate
6: and a great job and a team effort by madison faith and robbie on the piece a special thanks to laura spradley owner of Goo cluster a third generation family business trying to stay relevant in current times and fun and meaningful to families lives and to design your own Goo Goo cluster and have it sent to you you can go to the website googoo.com that's goo. Dot com. The story of the Goo, Goo Cluster, a Southern tradition, and many people around the country know it, too, here on Our American Story.
5: Visit livenation.com slash concertweek to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and two-door cinema club.
7: Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Class is in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen.
6: This is our American stories and some of our favorite stories to tell. Stories about our history. From George Washington to Jackie Robinson, we love bringing you in depth looks into the lives of great Americans. Today's story is less about a great American, but his pet parrot that had to be removed from his funeral. History professor Mark Cheatham tells us one of his favorite stories that he learned while working at Andrew Jackson's plantation, the Hermitage. Here's Mark.
3: When I was a docent at the Hermitage, the summer between my junior and senior years of college, one of my favorite stories to tell was that of Paul the Parrot. I never questioned its validity at the time, but several years ago, I decided to check on this story and see, was it actually true? Marsha Mullen, the authority on all things Andrew Jackson at the Hermitage, directed me to Reverend William Menifee Normant's recollections, which are in volume 3 of Samuel G. High School's book, Andrew Jackson and Early Tennessee History. In speaking about Jackson's 1845 funeral, Normant recorded, Before the sermon and while the crowd was gathering, a wicked parrot that was a household pet got excited and commenced swearing so loud and long as to disturb the people and had to be carried from the house. It's a great anecdote, and it's one I've told many times over the years, but the story became even more interesting for me because Normant was a graduate of Cumberland University where I currently teach. He was one of a group of Cumberland University students who visited Jackson shortly before the former president died in June of 1845. According to one Normant obituary, there are few if any people living today who saw General Andrew Jackson in the flesh Since the death of Judge Nathan Green of Lebanon, Tennessee a few years ago, Rev. Normant is the only survivor of that little group of students of Cumberland University that in the spring of 1845 visited Old Hickory at his famous country home, the Hermitage, 15 miles from Nashville. Here Rev. Normant described their visit. Cumberland University is at Lebanon, about 15 miles from the Hermitage, In the early spring of 1845, six of us Cumberland students decided we wished to meet General Jackson. One Saturday morning, we packed our lunches and got in a stagecoach, which went near the hermitage on the way to Nashville. When we arrived, Andrew Jackson Donaldson, nephew of the General, met us and conducted us to the Big East Room where the General was sitting before the fire. It was a wood fire and huge logs were burning the fireplace was about five feet high. Mr. Donaldson introduced us to the general as courteously as though we were a distinguished guests, and without rising, the hero of New Orleans shook hands. At once, we saw that the famous man was very feeble. After this introduction, we all sat around the fire. The general puffed occasionally at a short-stemmed silver pipe, which he held in his left hand. In his right hand, he held a long hickory cane. A Bible lay on the floor beside him. The general was very religious at this time, and when we told him who we were, some of us studying for the ministry, he leaned forward with his chin on his stick and exclaimed, A noble calling, young gentleman. He then advised us to make the most of our opportunities and become upright citizens. To tell the truth, we were rather disappointed because he did not tell us of battles and duels. Could this gentle religious old gentleman be the man whose, by the eternal, had sounded in the halls of Congress on the field of battle and dueling ground? Yet we sat looking at the living reality of our boyish dreams, an old man, feeble and lonely, who spoke of his wife as that sainted woman, and whose grave he daily visited. Up above the mantelpiece hung two long dueling pistols, mute witnesses of days gone by and I think these pistols occupied most of our attention. We spent more than an hour talking with the general, and when we were ready to leave, he again shook hands and wished us happiness and health. Normant's obituary went on to report, while still at school, word reached Cumberland University that General Jackson was dead. Only six weeks before, he had shaken his hand. Reverend Normant says he went to the funeral and that the general's parrot, excited by the multitude and the wailing of the slaves, let loose perfect gust of cuss words. The slaves of the general were horrified and awed at the bird's lack of reverence. The last quotation from this obituary is interesting for more than just Paul's swearing. Normans claimed that the enslaved people's wailing set off Paul's blue streak, and that they were horrified and awed by the parrot's lack of reverence, presents a view of enslaved people as being more pious than their southern slave owners. That's an interesting perspective, but it isn't surprising. White views of African Americans were complicated during and after slavery. Mark Smith's book, How Race is Made, Slavery, Segregation, and the Census* offers the simple yet powerful argument that Southern whites viewed African Americans as dirty and loathsome at the same time that they allowed them in their homes as servants and nannies or, in the case of some white masters and enslaved women, as they raped them. The same dichotomy holds true for African American morality and religion. Whites believed enslaved people practiced a heathen African religion, not religions, mind you, Yet they also thought enslaved people often possessed a spirituality that gave them greater moral insight and wisdom than their white Christian masters. In the case of Jackson's funeral, the perception is that members of the hermitage's enslaved community were appalled by Paul's language which she presumably learned from Old Hickory or other whites on the plantation because they were too moral to have used that language themselves. Of course, this interpretation ignores the agency of enslaved African Americans and the complexity of their religious beliefs and practices. It also overlooks the reality that the enslaved people at the funeral might have been mourning the uncertainty they faced. But those enslaved at the Hermitage needed only to look at his son to see how things could get worse. Andrew Jackson Jr. struggled with alcoholism, and unlike his father, he was a terrible money manager. The prospect of Junior taking over may have been enough to produce the wailing that Normant and others heard that spring day in 1845. If that was the reason for the enslaved people's sorrow, they were right to worry. Over the next 11 years, Junior not only sold off the hermitage piece by piece, but he also sold many of them as well.
6: And great job as always to Joey, and a thanks, a special thanks to Cumberland University history professor Mark Cheatham telling us the story of Andrew Jackson's cursing parrot, but also about so much more. And my goodness, to meet, imagine meeting a president under those circumstances and to hear the reading of a memoir and to get back into the mind and time of the day. And we love bringing people back in history. And what we also do is try not to judge people out of their context, out of their historical context. Because, well, it wouldn't be too kind of people to do it 100 years from now to us. And what a life Jackson led, by the way, a general in the U.S. Army. He served in both houses of Congress, went by the name Old Hickory. You also heard the hero of New Orleans. And of course, in the end, there's King Mob, too. Those were his three big nicknames. And by the way, if you have stories about American history, you know, we love telling them, but send them to us, send them to our American Stories. Dot com And if you want to be a part of this team, a part of the Our American Stories Nation, as we like to call it, um, feel free to give or donate as well. Uh, we are a nonprofit, and it is free to listen to Our American Stories, but it is not free to make. Again, if you want to be a part of our team, go to OurAmericanStories.com and give, too. We'd love your stories, and we'd love any help you can give us. Do a little, do a lot, uh, but if you can, help do your part. It's the story of Andrew Jackson's cursing parrot, here on Our American Story.
5: Visit LiveNation.com slash ConcertWeek to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. I bet you're smart. Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports. Every weekday afternoon, Post Reports takes you inside an important and interesting story with the kind of reporting that you can only get from The Washington Post. You can listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. Go find it now and hit follow.
6: And we continue with our American stories and with the story of an American classic. Stephen Ross is the largest real estate developer in America, the owner of the Miami Dolphins, and he shared his life story with our own Alex Cortez.
3: Stephen Ross is a Detroiter born and bred until his parents dragged him against his will midway through his freshman year of high school to Miami Beach, Florida.
0: I hated it down there actually. And I kind of rebelled against my parents and I, I, I got into a little trouble. I mean, I, I mean, I, as opposed to studying, I'd you know go out, playing, gambling a little bit, and you know I mean I had a, I had a, you know everything but study, even though my parents really tried to be strict, you know my father lectured all the time, as opposed because he was working and then he'd lecture me, I guess it didn't do any good, you know but it, it ultimately I guess it sunk it, I mean I don't know. I wanted to get out of there. I went to. My parents said, well, if you're going to leave, you don't want to go to school here, you have to go to military school. <laughs> so I spent about four days of military school and said, I'll go back to school, you know. And uh, I mean, I, I talked to most of my friends. I mean, probably my background was probably different than most because I'd never excelled early in life. And I was only you know, got into college because they had to accept me because I had a standardized test that I scored well enough that the school had to take you and they flunked out two thirds of the freshman class. They tell you, look on your left and look on your right. The person sitting next to you won't be here next year. And, uh, and so, you know, you kind of, it's a wake up call. But I also knew if I wanted something, we didn't, I wasn't gonna get anything from my parents. I mean, I wasn't left anything and they had nothing to give me, you know. So I knew what it was, you know, is either sink or swim. And then when I got to college, that's when I really kind of started to being able to do well at the University of Florida, then so I could transfer to Michigan and then law school. And then I got my master's in tax law, which I excelled in and was probably the best year of school I ever had, that I really found something I enjoyed. I'd always get good marks if I liked it, you know? If I didn't like the subject, I didn't do very well. The confidence, I mean, you know, you have to first find your confidence that you can succeed. And, and do something well and excel to continue on. I mean, as they say, success breeds success. I mean, my teachers told my parents they were wasting the time sending me to college, which is really kind of funny, right, when I look back at it now. So, I mean, I look at myself, I was a late starter in life because it, it, I probably it was probably about the least likely to succeed in my high school class. You know, so you tell me how much the, the teachers know. And, so the environment in which you're brought up, I mean, even what your parents, as much as my parents emphasized that and I could see, see things, it was really later that I really saw things a lot more clearly, you know?
3: After getting his master's degree at NYU, Stephen went back to his hometown to work at an accounting firm as a tax attorney.
0: I was doing very well practicing law and you know, certain life is really kind of funny. It's kind of impulsive. I'm in my office one day. It was, in fact, I remember, it, I can still picture it. It was June, I think it was June 7th or June 9th in 1968, the night before Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. And I'd watch it that at night. And that next day, you're wondering in life hey, you never know when it's over and thinking about that, you know. And he was a relatively young guy. And the partner walks in my office and asks me, if I wanna go to a seminar in New York. I said, you know what? And I hadn't even ever thought about it. I said, I wanna go, I think I wanna go to New York for good. As a matter of fact, I'm quitting, I'm I'm, I'm moving to New York. Never entered my mind. It never went from my mind to, you know, I'm I'm gonna think about leaving. And I hadn't even thought about leaving. And it just came up, I mean, life is so impulsive. Sometimes we don't even know ourselves, you know, what's really, what's going on. So then brought in the senior partner and they, you know, Steve's quit. He's leaving. He was going to New York, you know, and the guy said, what? I mean, Steve, you're doing great here. You're going to be a partner here and blah, blah, blah. But I got bored and I could see how I was tailing off in my mind. And I was just ready for something. And and that, that sparked it without me even thinking about it, you know? So a lot of things, you know, in life we think we're in control of, we're not necessarily in control of, and we really don't know. It takes something, it takes a spark for something to happen. I told my mother, she said, you don't know anybody in New York. I said, hey, you know, I went there, I loved it. And it, you know, the story is, if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere, blah, blah, blah. And uh, off I went, you know. <laughs> and When I went to New York then, the, the firm called and, and made several appointments for me to help me. You know, Lazard Freyer, Goldman Sachs, and what have you. And I went and I interviewed And then I saw a paper, this little article about Laird, which was a a new firm startup, young guys. It was backed by the DuPonts. It was very waspy. There was no Jews in the whole firm. They were doing a lot of really creative things. And, you know, the head of the firm was like 37 and 34 and 31. And and everybody said, you know, how can you consider it? You got a job at Lazard. That's the best deal house there is. And I took the job at Laird. You know, I'm sitting around the table when I went there and they and they said to me, why'd you come here? I said, well, I really narrowed it down between Lazard and Laird and everybody told me to go to L- Lazard so I figured I had to come to Laird. You know, you gotta <laughs> And I was there for about a year and a half. They didn't have any money and there was, I was doing things a little different and they didn't quite understand what I was doing and they suggested maybe I wouldn't be good there, And then two weeks after I left, not, nothing to do with my having left, they, they had a coup, and the firm kind of fell apart. And a friend of mine got me a job at who, who was working at Bear Stearns, got me an interview, and I was working on some creative deals, but I had the guy I was the wrong guy I was working for, and so I had put together this deal when I was a laird putting together a company that they were taking public. It was my idea to, to put several things that he was doing into one company and take it public. I'd been at Bear Stearns about two or three weeks, and that's when they had the coup. And uh, the guy called me and said, hey, I'd love to have Bear Stearns do this deal. I have other firms, there are smaller firms than Bear Stearns, but would Bear Stearns be interested? Met with this partner. Guy said, "It's great, they were located in California. The partner said, uh, I'll be in California next week. You know, I'll meet you and go through the stuff. I made an appointment, doesn't show up. Guy calls me, I go and tell him, oh, I got caught up in this other deal I was out there. I'll be either there, make, made an appointment, doesn't show up. Called me again, I told the guy, he said, you know, arrange a time and I'll call. So twice that happened, he never called. So a guy calls me, I said, hey, I would take it public. You got these other firms, I wouldn't wait. I haven't been here long enough, you know, I've been here now, what? two months, and I, I can't tell you what to do, you know, and, but if it were me, I'd go get the deal done, not wait for this guy to come out. It goes public, it's on the front page of the uh, Wall Street Journal on the right column, so it's lead article, and blah, 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 and it went from six to 19 in the opening, and that day the, the partner all of a sudden walks into my office for the first time, hey, whatever happened to that company, blah, blah you know, environmental systems? Was called, I said um, he's waiting for your phone call <laughs> you know and uh, he didn't take that obviously and then then after that he when I'd be in meetings he I mean he's always putting me down and you know and all that and finally, and I was doing a deal and for, when, we, when he approved a deal that I had brought in and worked on and then someone asked him well who's gonna work you know work on it for us when the senior guy said well Steve is he put it together and he knows it guys, why don't you confidence in Steve? And I said, I got no confidence in you. Next morning, I got a phone call. You know, I was fired. (laughs) Did I quit or was I fired? Story's better to say that I got fired, right? But I knew that that night, I knew I couldn't work here anymore before I had the meeting to get this deal approved. I mean, I said, if it gets approved, I'm thinking, and I was ready to quit. I knew even it got approved. I had to get out of there with this guy. I mean, here I'd left two jobs in a, in, in a really a six month period of time. So with that kind of resume, I, I, who's gonna hire me? And that's when I started my company and I had no money and I wanted to stay in New York. My mother lent me $10,000 to live on and then bootstrapped the company and never had an investor. So for about the next 30 years, Every penny I ever earned, I put back in the company and just grew the company. And then all of a sudden, you know, it's worth a lot of money. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a nice story that's true. And, and, and I really believe it, you know, when you're doing something and you're successful, you, you should believe in yourself. Who else can you trust more than yourself?
6: And a great job by Robbie producing the piece and a special thanks to Alex for finding this story, and it's a beauty. The story of Steve Ross, the owner of the Miami Dolphins, here on Our American Story.
2: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast
1: is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board.